I'm Ann Dart. I'm Tracy Stormy. And I'm Kathy Knight. And together we are It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club, a podcast for mystery lovers. Welcome. If you enjoy our show, please consider contributing to the Dark and Stormy Patreon. By becoming a patron, you will help us create better and quality content. There are also benefits to becoming a patron, such as exclusive content and Dark and Stormy merchandise. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash darkandstormybc. Check our website for the link. We appreciate any and all contributions. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the 89th episode of It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club. We're closing in on that hundred. On today's episode, we are going to have two interviews with Jilly McMillan. But first, we're going to talk to Rosemary Simpson about her Gilded Age mystery series. Rosemary was born in New York City and almost immediately started roaming. By the time she entered college, she had traveled extensively throughout the United States, Far East, and Europe, where she found her second home in France. After returning to the U.S., She earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in French language and literature. She currently lives near Tucson, Arizona. The book we will be discussing today is Death Brings a Shadow, a Gilded Age Mystery Book Number 4. In spring 1889, Prudence and Jeffrey set sail from New York Harbor on a private yacht bound for Bradford Island, where her friend Eleanor Dixon is to be wed. The sea islands along the Georgia Coast serve as a winter playground for the likes of the Carnegies, Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, and Dixons. Despite her Yankee pedigree, Eleanor is marrying a Southern gentleman, Teddy Bennett, and Prudence is thrilled to be the maid of honor. But days before the wedding, the bride is nowhere to be found. A frantic search of the island turns up her drowned corpse in an alligator-infested swamp. Prudence is devastated, but as they prepare the body for burial, she and Jeffrey discover evidence of bruising that indicates Eleanor was held under, most dishonorably murdered. Welcome, Rosemary. We would like to welcome Rosemary Simpson, who is the author of the Gilded Age Mystery Series. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. The first three Gilded Age Mysteries take place in New York. What inspired you to take Jeffrey and Prudence to the South in Death Brings a Shadow? That is a wonderful question and one that I've been asked many, many times so far. And the answer really is that if you look at the Gilded Age series, Each book has an underlying social aspect in addition to the mystery. In this case, I wanted to investigate Southern culture 25 years after the end of the Civil War. It's also Jeffrey's book in a way, because by investigating the Southern culture after the war, I'm investigating his background, leading towards a larger role in the series for Jeffrey. I had a friend whose father went down to the coastal islands for his health many, many years ago, kept a diary, which he passed down through the family. And I had some of those entries to guide me in what I was doing. Jeffrey's unease with his return to the post-Civil War South is clearly felt in this book. Is his character based on a historical person? 
Jeffrey isn't based on one person, but he is a combination of many different people. You have to remember that during the era of the Civil War and post-Civil War, many families were split in two. You had cousins in the North, you had cousins in the South. They literally fought one another during the period of the Civil War, had to find a way to come together after the war was over. In Jeffrey's case, had he lived anywhere else, he wouldn't have had conflict that he did. But being the son of a plantation owner and being against slavery, he was in a sense, even in his own mind, a traitor to his family, a traitor to his region. And this is his great struggle in his character. Well, that clearly comes through. Thank you. He is based on a number of people that I knew or whose diaries I read. While I'm not a Southerner myself, I lived in the South for a very long time. I met many people who told these same stories that they had been told by their grandparents, by their great-grandparents that had passed down through the family. And they always seemed to center around this conflict of who they were, what their ancestors had done, how they could be faithful to their ancestors, and at the same time progress, I guess you'd have to say, as people who were going to overcome past prejudices. Well, I think that's something that they're still dealing with today. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, we were particularly fascinated with the characters of Aunt Jessa and Queen Lula. Was the research into the magical practices difficult to obtain? And were any of the remedies or spells true to life? The spells and the remedies are all true to life. In fact, I took them directly out of books of spells that were available at that time and that are also preserved in archives and in family chronicles. One of the wonderful things about doing this kind of research is that on the internet, many, many families have put up pages in which they reproduce family diaries, family letters, so that in reading them, you can actually go back into an ordinary person's everyday life. One of the things was this pervasive sense of superstition, which I think comes from a desire to be able to control your own destiny. So if you didn't know what caused an illness, for example, in an effort to imagine that you have some control over your destiny, you're going to make up ways to either inflict pain or to cure something, and it has to do with superstition. Probably the most familiar one is the making of dolls, and the dolls were made out of corn husks in the countryside. They were blank until it came time to put a spell on someone, and at that point, the face was drawn in, hair was attached, it was often dressed, and it was given a name. People believed that this would inflict pain or disease or even something good on a person. But it was not difficult to find all this information. It's out there, came from the Caribbean, most of it. A lot of it is still practiced today. Well, what really struck me, and we might not think about this today, but you were talking about how the spells were written down in Queen Lula's spell book. Yes. And you don't think about it. She was illiterate to begin with, so she kind of had to work out how to write these words down, and some of them were French Creole. That must have been very difficult. Were some of the books or the resources you found online, were they written in this manner? Yes, they were. What you have to remember, though, is that although it was illegal in most of the slave-holding states to teach a slave to read, there were significant numbers of individuals who managed to learn to read anyway, especially in New Orleans, because New Orleans has a very different kind of slave-holding history than the rest of the South. It wasn't difficult to find it. 
they all exist out there. Well, we're glad you did because it was a great addition to the books. Thank you. When Aunt Bessa declined freedom when the slaves were emancipated, how common was that in the South? I think the thing that you have to remember is that she wasn't really declining freedom as such. She was free, but she had no place to go. She had no family because they'd been sold off, most of them. She had no money. She had no skills, and she was of a certain age. So the only place she could go was to stay where she was. That actually happened fairly frequently. Former slaves stayed in the area and often became tenant farmers on the same plantations where they had been slaves. It wasn't that uncommon. There was a lot of movement, but you also had families where one family member would stay on the plantation after freedom because they hoped that family members who had been sold off would come back to find them, and that was the only place they knew to go. How much research did you have to do into the Gilded Age and the role of women who lived in it? I do a lot of research. One of the things I do is I subscribe to the New York Times and to their archives, and so I usually start my day by reading the archives of the New York Times. So I'm reading Saturday, October 5th, 1890, and I'm reading the obituaries, I'm reading the social news of the day, I'm reading whatever articles happen to appear, and that transports me back in time. It also lends a little bit of verisimilitude, I would have to say, to the style in which the books are written. I can't write in the style of 1890, let's say, because it would be too difficult for a modern reader to slog through. But you pick up little phrases, little ways to construct a sentence. That kind of research helps you create this world. The other thing is the same families often publish the diaries and the letters of their parents, their grandparents, in particular for the first book, which takes place during the snowstorm of March 1888, there exists online a number of letters that people wrote to their family members and diary entries that they made about how horrible that snowstorm was. And all you have to do is find it. It's difficult to search for and find, but then you have it in their actual words. You have their attitudes towards it. As far as women is concerned, there's a tremendous amount of material about women in categories of law, especially, and family life, what they were allowed to do, what they weren't allowed to do. I think anybody who writes historical fiction, historical mysteries, we love the research. And we always warn each other and ourselves not to go down the rabbit hole of researching, 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 and never getting around to actually writing. <laughs> but what a great idea for the archives, just in the fact that I'm sure there's ads in there with the current fashions and yes. the notices that were posted. Very interesting. Absolutely. Well, Death Brings a Shadow was a sad story for almost everyone in the book. Was there any historical basis to the people of Bradford Island or Wild Acre? Yes, and that is the coastal islands off Georgia and off South Carolina also. Those are real islands. There are real people still living there today, and they are descendants of the slaves. Those were rice and indigo plantations on those islands. Again, there's a tremendous amount of material on them, available on the internet. As I say, since I did live in the South for many, many years, I visited those areas, walked through the live oak forests, scuffed my feet in the sand and in the Atlantic Ocean, and imagined what it was like to live there 
in an era when there wasn't any electricity, there wasn't any indoor plumbing, there was virtually no communication with the mainland. You had to get in a boat and go across the sound to get to the mainland. So yes, there is a, a really solid historical base to it. Part of your education was in France. Do you ever plan on taking Jeffrey and Prudence to visit the City of Lights? <laughs> I haven't thought of a valid reason to take them there yet. It's a good thought. But I can't think of a reason to take them there yet. I think what I would have to do is I would probably, I'd have to zip up the romance considerably, maybe even let them marry. Oh, that would be wonderful. How about a book about their honeymoon in Paris? Would that, that work? That would be great. <laughs> well, Jeffrey continues to be an enigma. He changes in almost every book to some degree or another. Will Prudence ever really crack that facade he has built up? I'm not sure. I hope she does. In the fifth book, I just turned this manuscript in on Monday to my editor at Kensington. In the fifth book, he, I have to tell it without it becoming a spoiler, he undergoes a difficult situation that brings them closer together than ever before. She's on the point of getting through, but I don't think she quite does. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> he is becoming a more complex character than I had originally thought he would be. It's hard to describe exactly how. He's just becoming more real and he has more depth. And with each book, even though Prudence is actually probably the main protagonist, he begins to assert himself in each book. Well, I really like the dynamic between the two of them. It grows in every new book. It just Thank a little you. bit closer, a little bit closer, but <laughs> not quite there. You alluded to the fifth book. Do you have a title and when is that coming out? It's coming out in 2020, either late summer or late fall. My books usually come out at the end of November every year, one a year. It is tentatively called Death diamonds and deception. <laughs> I'm not sure that that title would be the one it actually gets published under. It centers around a murder that has to do with a marvelous necklace that is made out of the Marie Antoinette diamonds that the French government auctioned off and were bought by Tiffany's, then made into marvelous, wonderful jewels. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And that one actually goes more into high society of the time, the Astors and the Vanderbilts. I think it's probably more a Prudence book than it is a Jeffrey book. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. Do you have any events or signings you'd like our listeners to know about for The Death Brings Us Shadow? As a matter of fact, I'm going to Pennsylvania in a couple of weeks. I'm going to Gettysburg. Pennsylvania because the county library system chose one of my books as their countywide read for 2019. So I'm going to make a couple of presentations at their libraries and then I'm going to the Easton Book Festival in Easton, Pennsylvania, appearing on a panel there. And in March, of course, I'll be here in Tucson for the Tucson Festival of Books, which is the fourth largest book festival in the United States. And I'm talking to a book club in a couple of weeks. So those are the main highlights. Okay. Can our listeners go to your website to find out about your events? Yes, they can. And we're in the process of updating the website. We had a bit of a problem with everybody gets hacked every now and then. We're in the process of updating the website, but yes. Okay, so what's your website address? www.rosemarysimpsonbooks.com Okay, we will include that in our show notes so mm -hmm. people can find out all about your books and where you're going to be. Thank you. You're 
quite welcome. I guess I should say that, like every other author of mystery series, I'm also trying to brew up another series. Ooh! And what is that going to be about? I'm looking at the Edwardian era, which is, and I'm actually targeting 1904-1905, and this one will be set in England. Great. Definitely keep us posted of that, and uh, let us know when you get that completed. I will. Well, thank you, Rosemary, for spending time with us today. We wish you all the best with your books. And we hope to meet you at Mouse Domestic next year. Oh, thank you. Yes. Wonderful. Enjoy the rest of your day. I will. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. I really like this book. I like this series. I have read several of these. I haven't read all of them. There was one that was fascinating with the pictures that people took back then of people who had died, the morbid. What did they call those? There's a name for it. This book, it was very good. I enjoyed keeping up with Prudence and Jeffrey. I hadn't read any of the other books in the series. I like how she described the location. Location. I thought that she did an excellent job of making the backdrop of the Georgia swampy island almost a character in the book. She did. You felt the heat. You felt the mosquitoes. You felt the bugs. It's just horrible. Does she do the same with the other parts of the series in New York? I think if I remember right, it's been a year or so since I read the first book in the series. It was very well done. The setting is, of course, New York in the before the turn of the century. Turn of the century, where a woman was supposed to live at home and do feminine things womenly things. Yes, and she has started her own little detective agency, and she works with Jeffrey, and they get into all kinds of adventures. This one takes place in the Deep South. Well, Jeffrey grew up in North Carolina, so it was kind of going home for him. You could feel his guilt and his shame. He was uncomfortable going back to that setting because it was just after the Civil War, and he did not agree with the slavery issue. He was was not very popular with the southern gentlemen True. in that area. I love the portrayal of the slave population. They were actually freed slaves who just had no other place to go, so they stayed on the plantation and still did the same work they did as they were slaves, but they play a very pivotal part in the story. I think she did an excellent job portraying them. From what I understand, that was the majority of the cases that the slaves had nowhere else to go. So they stayed and they became sharecroppers, but they really weren't paid all that much. And a lot of times they wound up kind of extending their indebtedness to the people who used to be their owners. So it really wasn't a very pleasant transition from slavery to free man for most of that population. I also like the portrayal of the voodoo women? Yes, definitely. They played a pivotal part in the story. The story could not have gotten solved as it was without the help of the slave population. Well, we enjoyed Rosemary's book very much. We recommend that you pick it up and read the whole series, and we wish her all the best. We'll have a talk with Jilly McMillan, who wrote the book. The Nanny. McMillan is the internationally best-selling author of 
five novels. A former art student and photographer, Jilly studied at Bristol University and the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. She lives in Bristol, UK with her husband and three children. The book we're going to talk with Jilly about is called The Nanny. When her beloved nanny Hannah left without a trace in the summer of 1988, seven-year-old Jocelyn Holt was devastated. Haunted by the loss, Joe grew up bitter and distant and eventually left her parents and Lake Hall, their faded aristocratic home, behind. Thirty years later, Joe returns to the house and is forced to confront her troubled relationship with her mother. But when human remains are accidentally uncovered a lake on the estate, Joe begins to question everything she thought she knew. In this compulsively readable tale of secrets, lies, and deception, Jilly McMillan explores the darkest impulses and desires of the human heart. Diabolically clever, the nanny reminds us that sometimes the truth hurts so much you'd rather hear the lie. Welcome, Jilly. We have with us this morning, Jilly McMillan. Her latest book is The Nanny. Welcome, Jilly. Hi, thank you for having me. You have said in previous interviews that you start your novel with an idea of a setup or a character that really intrigues you. There are several different characters in The Nanny that each have important roles in the narrative. Which character was the first on the scene to get your creative juices flowing? Well, I would say that the first character on the scene was was Jo or Jocelyn as she was known when she was younger because I needed a central character a heroine somebody who would drive the action but what I will say is that the first character to really get my creative juices going was her mother Virginia Lady Virginia Holt because she was a character who daunted me I was quite frightened of writing her because she comes from a world that I don't belong to but once I began to write her I enjoyed her hugely she was a fantastic character to write. In the very beginning scene of the book, a mother rather rudely tells her daughter to get out. It's not clear which mother or daughter that is until later in the book. Was this a conscious decision to be so cryptic or just a device to set the tone of the novel? I think it was probably a bit of both. I wanted to be cryptic because the book contains two very powerful mother-daughter relationships. I didn't want to read to know which pair was in this scene and I also wanted it to set the tone it's sort of it's rude as you say it's a little bit unexpected it's a moment that you might normally expect a mother to share with her daughter but the mother in this paragraph at the beginning of the book does not she does something very cold instead so I think it was a bit of both well it worked very well thank you detective Andy Wilton has an obvious grudge against the aristocracy embodied in Lady Virginia Holt as you previously said she rather daunts you well, she kind of dawns him as well. <laughs> Is this prevailing sentiment in the UK now? I think it always has been. I think it's part of our social culture and part of our history. The aristocracy has always been something that's divided people and divided the country. There are a lot of issues about so much power and wealth being in the hands of so few people. And Andy Wilton, my detective in The Nanny, doesn't like it. And I think many people in the UK feel the same way. And it's just the system that we've all grown up with. But I think it's probably being challenged more now than it ever has been in the past. 
He's also a little bit of a homage to the town that I grew up in called Swindon, which is a very proud working class town where the railway industry grew. I wanted to do a really strong character from Swindon. So that was Andy Wilton for me. I'm curious, is he going to be an ongoing character for you? Probably not, but never say never. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed him. Oh, that's, that's nice to hear. I love writing him. We check your bio. It says you have an art history background. Right. The art forgery angle would not be a stretch for you. How fun was it weaving in those details? Oh, it was super fun. It was fantastic. I did. I studied art history here in Bristol in the city I live in now and also in London. And it was that year in London where I came into contact with some of those more kind of flamboyant characters and some of the real uh, sort of art historical institutions in London and big galleries and things. And it was a real little small world unto itself. So it was super fun to mine that a bit for the nanny and and put in that storyline. It felt very suitable for Virginia. Well, since the book was written from three different perspectives and two different time frames, what process did you use to keep the storyline straight? Uh, A lot of coffee. (laughs) 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 I usually just take off at the beginning of the book, kind of follow my gut. It gets to a point where I simply can't hold it all in my head. So probably at about 40,000 words, just under halfway through the book, I will begin a spreadsheet and I will start to note down which scene is told by which narrator and what's happening in which timeline. And I I rely on that heavily, get toward the end of the book to keep track of everything. That's interesting. Most authors will either say they're a pantser or a plotter, and you seem to do both. Well, except that I do it retrospectively. So I'll write and then add to the spreadsheet what I've done. And then later in edits, I'll check it all over. So I'm much more of a pantser. I can't really plan ahead. I'd like to, but I sort of fail in that respect. Well, I have to say that a lot of authors choose to take that line with doing different timelines. You did it brilliantly. It was very easy to keep track of your storyline, which was, thank you. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. That's something that I work on really hard with my editors to make sure we don't confuse everybody, including ourselves. (laughs) We don't have any experience with a nanny. Did you happen to have a nanny as a child? No, I didn't. When I was a little bit older, my mom, I was the oldest of three and my mom was an English teacher. So when I was probably nine or 10, she did get the help of an au pair girl to help with my younger sibling. So that's as close as I've got to having a nanny in our family. But that was interesting. You know, those people really get into the heart of a family and they have a lot of power emotionally and practically. That was what intrigued me about about the nanny as a central character. What gave you the idea to write this intriguing story? I was talking to my agent. We always talk between books about what the next be. And we were speaking about how many books have a missing person as the central premise. I've done that myself. My debut, What She Knew, was about a little boy who goes missing. And we thought, well, you know, what would happen if you flipped that? What if you turned it on its head and you had a stranger or not a stranger, somebody returning to a family after many, many years and saying, well, here I am again. And what if they disappeared under odd circumstances in the first place? And we thought, well, that would be fun. And then we didn't think you could do it with a family member because we wanted uncertainty as to whether this really was the person they said they were. So we thought, well, what about a nanny? Because they are so close with families and they have this very intimate relationship. We thought that would work very well. Do you think the use of nannies is 
was this at this time in the world or than it was back in the Victorian times? I'm going to say yes, if not more so, because I think more women work these days, so they need to use nannies. So there's probably more nannies now. I don't know. I'm guessing a bit. <laughs> my, my granddaughter's a nanny. <laughs> ah, I apologize. No. <laughs> That's for my book. <laughs> I think she would love this book. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Do you have any new books or events coming up you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, I'm in a little bit of a writing cave at the moment, finishing my next novel. So all I can say about that presently is that it is actually about a writer. That's about it. So that's what I'm doing. And I will hope to reemerge again next year with some more events and stuff like that when that book comes out. Do you have a title? Nope. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> you got one? <laughs> what about a estimated time frame? Uh, it hopefully will be out next fall. And will it be along the same lines as Nanny? Will it be that style of book? It will be a psychological thriller. Yes, Yay! absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, be sure and let us know when it comes out so we can review it on the program. Oh, I will. Thank you. Well, Jilly, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. We so much enjoyed the Nanny and we look forward to your next endeavor. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I enjoyed this book. I thought it was very well written. The characters were well developed. I enjoyed the fact that every step of the way, you did not know where this book was going to go. Who you thought was good or not so good. (laughs) And it was deceptively delicious. I really liked the portrayal of Jo and her mother's relationship. It was very interesting. She told the stories from each of their points of view. So you had an inkling of what they were thinking to themselves, and yet they never really spoke to each other in the same way. So there was a lot of misunderstanding and misreading of the other's feelings and motivations and so forth. It was a kind of true to life between mother and daughter kind of depiction, I think. What would you girls say, yeah, mom and I would, daughter? I would, I would totally agree. Well, I'm just glad we don't have that kind of relationship. I couldn't afford a nanny for you. <laughs> well, in this case, I'm grateful. I thought it was very interesting about the art forgeries. Oh, definitely. And just very interesting. And how these people, they were running a business. That's how they were making their money. And it, it was just so well organized. It was just like, okay, this is what we're going to do. It got done. <laughs> yeah, that uh-huh. wasn't a big focus in the book, but it was definitely no, an interesting it was a, it was in backdrop. There. And that just added another dimension to the deception that was going on in this book. I like the character of Joe because you met her in the beginning. She was only seven years old, and then you meet her again as an adult in the book. And I thought her relationship with her own child was interesting, how she was trying to maintain control of her child but still be able to go to work. And it's a lot of things that mothers deal with. But then you've got your mother who's kind of undermining you along the way. I'm quoting from Goodreads. This is what one of the people who wrote a review of this book said. What a surprising slow burn thriller with unlikable but totally appreciable characters. If you can handle a little bat 
crazy and sociopathic tendencies, they were all right. So <laughs> I definitely that, agree that with that. Is that is good. I would give them credit, but I can't pronounce their name. And it describes this book very well. I there mean, is a lot of crazy in this book. A lot of crazy. <laughs> if you can handle that, the book comes out okay. Now, this was a standalone, and you can kind of see why this was, because it's one of those stories that it came to its closing. So I can't wait to see what Jelly comes up with next. This book came out in September. Death Brings a Shadow came out today, just hit the shelf. So you can run out and buy that first. Yes, so definitely. you can check out both these books. You can go to your local bookstore. That's what we definitely recommend. Yes. Support local bookstores. Now is the perfect time because we've hit the holiday season. And speaking of that, we'd like to take the time to wish our American listeners a very happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble. Don't eat too much. <laughs> Visit our website at itwasadarkandstormybookclub.com. You can click on links to listen to any or all of our episodes if you want to binge them. That would be fun. A fun Thanksgiving project. What do you think? No? Oh. <laughs> we also, next week, our newsletter comes out. If you want to be one of the first people to receive that, definitely hit that subscribe button so you get our monthly newsletter. We will not spam your inbox. We will only send you the newsletter. We promise. And you can find out what's coming up in December when you get our newsletter. Some good stuff. And some book recommendations too. We're still looking for short story submissions for next year's newsletters. We will put a short story in each newsletter. So we have 12 opportunities for writers to get a short story in front of publishers. Hint, hint, wink, wink. 1,500 to 2,000 words. It does not have to be an original story. You can submit one that you submitted to a magazine or a newsletter somewhere else. I'm sure it will be new to yes. our readers. Yes. Just put the subject line short story submission in the email to us. All right. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of another fun-filled episode. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you next week. I'll say ditto to what Tracy said, and remember, life would be boring without a little mystery. Bye. Bye. Gobble, gobble. <laughs>